I'm James Murphy, your co-host, along with my dog Seamus. This is the podcast that covers elections in the U.S. and around the world as if they were a sport. Imagine if ESPN ran out of sports to cover and made a new station covering the greatest game of all, the Game of Thrones. We've got a good show for you today. We're going to cover ways to increase voter turnout and include an interview with the communications director of the Secretary of State of Oregon, who is spearheading a new idea that should make it much easier to vote in the upcoming election. But if encouraging voters isn't enough for you, we're going to go to the International Ballot Ball Studio and talk about what happens in the various countries around the world that don't just encourage you to vote, but require it by law. Finally, as always, we're going to take our time machine and travel back in time and explore an important election of the past. Today, it's back to ancient Republican Rome. But hold on, don't turn off the show yet. This tour back to the Roman Republic is pretty interesting when you compare it to today's politics. And hey, if I get up the courage, I'll even use a comparison linking Donald Trump to Julius Caesar. So yeah, you've got that to look forward to. So let's get right to it. We're going to take a break from the horse race of this year's election. Things are becoming clearer about who's likeliest to get their party's nomination. But if my Facebook news feed is any indication, don't tell Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz supporters that, because they will find an article or three that tell you just how wrong you are. Maybe by the time the next episode comes out, we'll be able to know for sure who's spearheaded to their party conventions victorious. Now, what we're going to talk about today is a bigger picture. Why is voter turnout so low in the United States? And what can be done about it? According to the Pew Research Center, 84% of registered voters came to the polls in the last presidential election in 2012. And that number actually sounds pretty good. Among developed countries, uh, it's the third highest number behind only Luxembourg and Australia. But that number is contrasted with the fact that only 53% of the voting age population voted. And that's a figure that trails most of the rest of the world. That's 33rd on that same list. And all of these numbers are high watermarks. During midterm elections or even special elections, turnout is much, much lower. Now at BallotBall.com, we try to take an even-handed, nonpartisan approach to politics. We're not going to try to get you to change your mind on who to vote for. We just want to have a discussion about how elections affect the world. But we do skate radically away from neutrality when it comes to voter turnout. Like a frustrated MLS or hockey fan who doesn't know why their favorite sport isn't more popular, we favor all forms of voter encouragement in order to get everyone to vote in every election. Everything short of compulsory voting. Compulsory dodgeball and gym class put me off the sport entirely, so I'm not about to make the same mistake for voting. Now, I can see what you might be thinking. Getting back to the statistics I mentioned for turnout, just because someone is of voting age doesn't necessarily mean they're eligible to vote. Many states don't let felons vote, and many people that live in the United States aren't actually citizens and don't have voting rights. Well, when you do the arithmetic on all these groups, and even add the eligible voters that live overseas, you still get a figure of only 58% of eligible voters voting. And this is not very impressive. And so what is to be done? The first most obvious answer is just attract more uh, attractive candidates. Both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have rallied their bases and excited new voters, and so that might be the simplest way to get more people to vote. But let's say a bunch of new voters wanted to show up and vote. There are a number of systemic roadblocks that keeps this from happening. Going back to the numbers I quoted earlier, most registered voters vote. Remember, 84% in 2012. So maybe the best bet is to just register more voters, and they can take it from there. To accomplish this, many states are considering universal registration laws. If they can take down the barrier of registration, that makes it just a little bit easier to vote. To explain what this means, I had the chance to speak to someone from the first state in America to sign automatic voter registration into law. I had the chance to speak to Molly Wooten, the communications director to the Oregon Secretary of State. 
Great. Um, well, so the Oregon Motor Voter Law was passed by the legislature during the last legislative session in 2015. It took effect on January 1st of this year. So we are starting to get in some data about how it's working, and the results are really encouraging. Basically, how it works is um, when people go to the DMV to get a new license or renew a license or ID, they um, that they're, if they are coded as a citizen and we their citizenship is confirmed by the DMV, their information is sent to our agency and our elections division and the Secretary of State's office. We then match that up against our voter file to see if those folks are registered to vote or not. And if they are not, they get uh, a card in the mail. We call it the Oregon Motor Voter Card. And with this card, they have 21 days to check a box and decline to be registered to vote or check a box to choose a political party because most of our, our major political um, party primaries are closed. Hmm. And they send that card back to us within 20 day, 21 days and we'll make the changes. And if they do nothing, then they automatically become a non-affiliated voter. Okay. And how did it work before the law where they, they had the option to, to, to apply, yeah. to register? So before it would be one, you know, it would be a question um, when you were at the DMV counter, hey, you know, hey, do you want to take this moment to register to vote? And, you know, we know that people at the DMV that maybe have been waiting a while, maybe they've got kids with them, maybe they're on their lunch break, you know, by the time you get done with your paperwork, you probably don't want to fill out any more paperwork. So we, um, we see... We see this as a, as a way to um, increase registration and um, people's engagement with the system. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned that you were seeing some positive results. Uh, what, what, have you, what have you seen so far? So we don't have enough information to kind of make statistically, you know, solid assessments. We're uh -huh. going to need a few months of data. But we looked at the first two weeks of data that we got when the program started. So the, it would be... We got it at the end of January, the beginning of February, because the data only counts after the 21-day window has closed. And what we saw was that with, um, how many days was it? With, with 10 days of information, we were registering twice as many voters as we do in an average month. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It, so, has, oh, go ahead. No, just so, I mean, this is this is huge. We were, we're projecting to, to add about 10,000 voters a month to the voter rolls. And then, you know, as this process becomes more and more standard over eight years, which is the life cycle of the driver's license or ID card in Oregon, we should be able to reach every single eligible voter in Oregon. Oh. Has, has anyone returned the card saying they don't want to be registered to vote? Yeah, there, uh, absolutely. There are people that, that pick uh, to opt out to oh. decline the voter registration. Um, and the number of people who are opting out versus picking a party, it's kind of, it's pretty much even. Oh. Um, so you've got the whole, the, the vast majority of people, 82% of people uh, on the numbers I'm looking at, didn't return a card. So they became automatically registered voters. Mm -hmm. Of that 18%, um, 7% opted out and 9% picked a party. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, so, that's so interesting to me that someone would take the take the trouble to mail back a card to not register to vote. I'm <laughs> well, just I'm curious what the what the rationale there would be. I wonder. Yeah, well, it, it is very interesting. You know what? I, I find it amusing when people pick non-affiliated and send the card back uh -huh. because they could do nothing and become non-affiliated, but they're they're overachievers. Uh -huh. um, 
you know, we when this bill was going through the legislative process, there were there's certainly people that don't want to be registered voters. They don't want anything to do with the system. Mm. They don't want to be on the list. Um, and we respect that. If that's what they want, we will take them off and they will never be asked again um, if they go in for a renewal or a replacement license. We will we will not bother them. If they change their mind and they do want to become a registered voter, they can do so at any time. We have online voter registration. It's uh, really, really simple. Okay. Was there, when you mentioned the legislative process of making the bill, like, was there some partisan opposition or was it a hard time to get the law passed? You know, it's it, it's unfortunate the bill was passed along party lines. Um, mm. There were uh, concerns from the Republicans about, I, I'm not, you know, about security, which we feel like all of those concerns have been addressed. Um, concerns, you know, one of the things we heard a lot was people should have to put some effort into it. People should have to, you know, we're not asking so much that they just fill out the card. And, no. you know, our, our response to that was kind of, we're not, first of all, no one is required to vote. It's just, we're just registering them. And second of all, we don't make people register for any of their other constitutional rights. You don't have to register to have freedom of the press or freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't, you know, we want everyone to have the opportunity to vote if they, if they choose. And because we have... Um, universal vote by mail in Oregon. All of our elections are done through mailed ballots. We don't have same-day voter registration. Mm -hmm. So we want everyone to have that option and to know that they're registered and they can vote if they so choose. Okay. Yeah, you me you mentioned the, the vote, vote by mail. I, I remember that because I used to live in Oregon. Uh, it seems like uh, Oregon's kind of like a, a leader when it comes to these sort of like voting uh, uh, voting evolutions or these voting reforms because wasn't Oregon the first state that did the vote by mail the 100% yep absolutely we were the first state and you know as our Secretary of State Jean Atkins has been traveling around the country and going to conferences and things you know most states are talking about things like online registration or doing pilot projects with vote by mail mm -hmm. and you know we did that we, we vote by mail was you know 16 years ago We've been able to register online for at least four or five years, I think. Um, so Oregon really is kind of the at the leading edge of this, and, um, and it's an exciting place to be. It can also be, you know, kind of frightening because, you know, with this uh, automatic voter registration, no one's ever done it before. So we are sort of we are pioneers in in many senses. Yeah, I've been I've been looking at the uh, the Brennan Center for Justice has a list where they're tracking uh, automatic voter registration laws that are going through multiple states right now. And and yeah, it looked like uh, Oregon was the first. It looked like California was the only other state that had uh, that had passed passed uh, the governor had signed that into law last last late last year. Mm -hmm. That's correct. They they are the only other state. They have not implemented the program yet. Um, they have different kind of parameters and, and needs to get their program up and running. Um, so we know that people are, are watching us closely to, to see how things work. Oh, right. With the uh, with the primaries coming up, and you mentioned the, the vote by mail, have the, the ballots already gone out for the, the May primaries? No, 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 not at all. Um, the ballots go out um, around uh, the end of April, maybe middle of April, end of April. Um, ballots will go out sooner for overseas voters and military voters. Um, so there will be some, um, we'll be making an effort to make sure people know, particularly non-affiliated voters, that if they want to vote in the Republican or the Democratic primary, they need to register with that party 
Um, Oregon is also unique in that we have a third major party uh, that was certified in the fall of 2015, and that is the Independent Party of Oregon with a capital I. Hmm. They um, have announced that they are going to open up their primary, so non-affiliate voters can vote in that primary without changing their registration. And, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time, so it's kind of easy to track, but we know that especially for new voters, this is a lot of information. Uh -huh. So we're, do we're doing our best to communicate it clearly and make sure people are aware of their options. So then, um, are there are there any other laws in the in the works then? If if Oregon's leading the way with uh, the vote by mail, <laughs> the automatic registration, like uh, I always I always hear people talking about a, a voting holiday, a day off to 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 vote, is something like that in the works next? No, not here. I mean, that would be interesting since uh, you know we have a, a three week window to turn in your ballot. Um, but one, you know, I think the the next sort of conversation around voting and voting access here in Oregon will be around paid postage for vote by mail. Um, over, we've, we've kind of um, tipped over where most people are actually dropping off ballots at ballot drop sites and not mailing them in. But, you know, we do have reason to believe that uh, stamps, finding a stamp is, is a barrier, particularly for young voters. Um, you know, they don't use stamps for anything. Mm -hmm. So that'll be, um, there was a bill introduced this session for paid postage. It does not appear to be moving, but the sponsor, one of the sponsors of the bill has, has said that he will be um, bringing it back next year. Do you have any, uh, any predictions about like how the 2016 election will go? It sounds like it's like a tight race, especially with the, well, I guess with both parties right now, like, do you think that'll lead to super high turnout or, or maybe lower turnout since so many you new people what, are registered? It'll be interesting. It's been eight years since Oregon's had a presidential primary that was close. So when, um, uh, President Obama and Hillary Clinton were running against each other. We're, we're pretty late in the primary schedule, so that was kind of exciting. You know, it remains to be seen if that'll still be the case here or not. Um, we have a contested primary for Secretary of State, actually, because uh, my my boss, Secretary Atkins, is not running for re-election. Um, so, you know, we think that the turnout will be will be good, but there's so much research to be done and so much for us to analyze about what these new voters are going to do. It's um, it's really it's really exciting. It's and it's hard to predict. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so you don't you don't want to you don't want to go out on a limb and make a make a prediction. This is kind of like a it mixes like sports and politics together. So we always need a hot, <laughs> need a hot take or something like that. <laughs> you know, I, I predict that more people will be voting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Well, Molly Woon, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us today. With that, let's go to the International Ballot Ball Studio to find out what happens when governments decide to go beyond mere voter encouragement and decide to make laws saying that you don't just have the option to vote, you have to vote. So we just had a nice good chat about the ways to encourage people to vote, or at least make voting easier. But what happens if we went further than that? What happens if we made it illegal not to vote? This is being tried right now in at least 26 countries around the world. It was even tried in the U.S. for a time. The state of Georgia wrote it into their constitution in 1777, but that went away once the U.S. constitution was signed a few years later. But around the world, there have been some very interesting results from compulsory voting. The, for instance, the citizens of Singapore are compelled to vote. Failure to do so means that their names will be removed from the voter rolls entirely. Essentially, they become unregistered to vote in the future. They can get that right back if they fill out a if they list an explanation of why they didn't vote and they pay a fine. 
Europe is slowly getting rid of their compulsory voting laws. Until 2000, failing to vote in Greece meant you couldn't apply for a passport or a driver's license. In Switzerland, three of the four cantons have gotten rid of their compulsory voting laws. But if you are one of the 80,000 Swiss who live in the mountainous Schaffhausen canton, you better vote or fear the government fining you six whole Swiss francs. That's about $6 American. Without a doubt, the region that has embraced mandatory voting more than anywhere else is Central and South America. Twelve countries between Mexico and Argentina have laws on the books telling citizens to get out to vote. The consequences of staying home on Election Day vary. Most people admit that there are no real consequences in Mexico for not voting. But in Peru, you have to carry proof that you voted around with you for months after the election. Otherwise, banks might refuse to serve you and other public services might be denied. One loophole that many of these countries have for non-voting is waiving the obligation if you're in the military or illiterate. Joining up is probably pretty easy to do, but I'm not exactly sure how you would prove your illiteracy. It seems like a catch-22 to ask illiterate people to fill out the I am illiterate form correctly on their voter registration. If it's done correctly, doesn't that just prove that you're lying? So how effective is compulsory voting? Well, I wouldn't suggest you bet the farm on it. Mexican voter turnout is about the same as it is in the United States, sometimes even higher, and in Switzerland, the Schaffhausen and their Swiss brethren have some of the lowest voter turnout on earth. However, no talk of compulsory voting is complete without discussing Australia. It is example number one whenever people are supporting the idea of mandatory voting. Don't vote in Sydney or Melbourne, and you'll pay a fine from $20 to $170 Australian. Uh, you might have to show up in court, and if you don't pay the fine, you might go to jail. Turnout in Australia is almost 90%, the highest on the planet. To editorialize, these compulsory laws seem well-intentioned enough, but also a little tone-deaf. There are so many things we can do to improve voter turnout that involve encouragement and engagement that we should probably try all of these first before we start fining folks for not ex exercising the hard-won freedom of voting. But let's leave that there and move on to our final segment, Ballot Ball Classic and a Trip Back in Time. As I discussed in the last episode of Ballot Classic, this segment is supposed to be about traveling through time and space to talk about an important election in the past. But the American presidential election has been acting as a sort of black hole and distorting the space-time continuum and causing my time machine to malfunction. I'm happy to say that I fixed the machine. I kept banging on it with a wrench until the flux capacitor whizzed back to life. And it looks like it wants to send me back to the year 133 BC and the city of Rome. I hear Italy is beautiful this time of year, so I'm rearing to go as soon as I mention this important disclaimer. The story I'm about to tell you is about a, a man named Tiberius Gracchus. And before you turn off this episode because you don't give a fig for Roman history, let me preface it with this. This story speaks directly to modern American politics. For the last few years, it's easy to see that the American government has been gridlocked. From the government shutdown, to filibusters, to the executive actions going over the head of Congress. Currently, the biggest issue is how to fill the, the vacancy on the Supreme Court. President Obama wants to do it now, while Senate Republicans want to hold on until after the election. The story of Tiberius Gracchus is the story about what happens if the checks and balances of government wind up shutting the whole thing down. And there's really something for everyone here, regardless of your partisan position. If you think the Republicans are being intransigent and gumming up the works, well, you've got something out of, you'll get something out of this story. And if you're a Republican and favor obstructionism compared to the alternatives, there's something for you too. Because Tiberius Gracchus is the guy who is going to be doing the obstructing in the story, and he is definitely, without a doubt, the hero. So here we go. Over 2,000 years fly by the window 
of my time machine, and now we're plunked down in the center of Rome. Tiberius Gracchus has been on the campaign trail for weeks, trying to get himself elected as the People's Tribune. This is a pretty easy sell because Tiberius is a national hero. He just helped Rome defeat Carthage, and for the first time the Republic enjoys sole dominion over the Mediterranean. In the war, he won an award for being the first man over the Carthaginian walls in the final attack on the city. Imagine if a U.S. soldier had personally kicked down the Berlin Wall and then returned home to run for office. He'd be a shoe-in. The office of People's Tribune is an important one, and with it comes a lot of power. Tribunes are elected directly and serve for a year, and during that time they can greatly affect the lives of Roman citizens. Tiberius campaigned hard for working people and wanted to fight back at the abuses of the rich. Namely, he was targeting the corruption and that was creating massive homelessness and poverty. You see, there was a law on the books saying that no one could own more than 500 acres of land. In fact, no one owned any land because it was all the property of the Roman Republic itself, and the people that had the land paid rent back to the treasury. Over time, the rents were rising because Rome had to pay for all its wars, and local, govern local governors were just raising rents for the hell of it so they could skim a little off the top. This was impoverishing the citizens and forcing them to sell their leases to the rich, who would circumvent the law about having only 500 acres of land by keeping the original name on the lease. But once this transaction was complete, the rich guys kicked the original tenants off the land and brought in slaves to do the actual farming. It was way cheaper this way. This all seems pretty crass, right? Well, funny you should think that, because this is the exact time period where, the where we get the word crass itself. Marcus Licinius Crassus lived around this time, and he had become the richest man in Rome by starting a business that made his name famous. He made his fortune by establishing one of the first fire departments. The idea was that he'd wait until your house was on fire, and then show up with the fire crews. Only, he didn't get to work putting out the fire until the homeowner agreed to sell his house to Crassus for a fraction of what it was worth. The owner got a few sesterci for his troubles, and Crassus got a fixer-upper. Pretty crass, right? So, by 133 BC, you have a Roman Republic where the wealth is incredibly consolidated, and the poor citizens of Rome do not like the rich aristocrats who have booted them off their own land. Tiberius Gracchus was just what they were looking for. His idea? The Lex Sempronia Agraria. History calls them the Gracchan Reforms. As a tribune, he could call for a vote amongst his fellow tribunes that would enforce the laws on the books and kick the aristocrats who, who were skirting the 500-acre land rule off their land. They would be compensated a fair market rate for their trouble, and then the original tenants would have their rights restored. The historian Plutarch records Tiberius's campaign speech, and it's a doozy. The wild beasts that roam over Italy have every one of them a cave or lair to lurk in, but the men who fight and die for Italy enjoy the common air and light, but nothing else. Houseless and homeless, they wander around with their wives and children, and with lying lips their imperators exhort the soldiers in their battles to defend sepulchres and shrines from the enemy. They fight and die to support others in wealth and luxury, and though they are, they are styled masters of the world, they have not a single clod of earth that is their own. This is a pretty good argument, and it's easy to see why it won the day. A lot of these homeless people that had been forced off their lands were veterans like Tiberius. And what had the wars been fought for if, if it wasn't to make their own lives better? So now, Tiberius has called all the people's tribunes together for a vote on his reform. A crowd has gathered to see the historic vote. One by one, the tribunes vote for the new law. But then, one of Tiberius's closest friends, fellow tribune Marcus Octavius, rises to vote. Veto, he says. The crowd loses it, yelling and screaming, gnashing of teeth. You see, tribunes have a lot of power, but one of the checks on their power is that no law can go forward if a single tribune vetoes it. 
It's widely believed that rich landowners influenced Octavius to veto the law, but because but whatever the case, this was the ballgame. Tiberius's law cannot go forward. The tribunes adjourn for the day, and Tiberius and Octavius have a sit-down. There must be something they can do to work it out, but Octavius isn't budging. Furious with his friend, Tiberius blames the rich elites behind the scenes, and when the next day's vote commences, he announces that he's changing the law and doubling down on his reform. Not only are the rich going to be stripped of their ill-gotten lands, but now they're not going to get reimbursed for their trouble. They're going to have to survive on 500 acres of land like the rest of the Romans. Needless to say, this doesn't exactly weaken Octavius' resolve. He vetoes the law again, and the crowd goes berserk again. It's clear that Octavius' plan is to veto the law every day until both his and Tiberius' one-year terms of office run out. But two can play at this game. Tiberius realizes that if Octavius can veto something that is so important, so can he. The next day, the tribunes are brought together to vote, not on the reforms, but on some trivial and purely ceremonial votes like opening the market for business. Veto, says Tiberius. The market has to stay closed. Another vote on opening the banks for the day. Veto, says Tiberius. He's going to shut down the whole government until Octavius will let him pass his agrarian reforms. The ports are kept closed. The temples are kept closed. Even the public baths are kept closed. All city services are shut down. There is no functioning government for days. But neither side budges. Vetoes all around. Everyone searches through their legal tomes to find some way out of this shutdown. Until finally, Tiberius goes with his nuclear option. He declares Octavius an enemy of the state and calls for a vote to have him impeached and banished from the city. Unsurprisingly, Octavius is not allowed to vote on his own banishment and so must remain silent while his fate is decided. The vote begins and one by one, everyone else lines up behind Tiberius, voting to banish Octavius. When the vote is just one away from receiving the majority he needs, we pick up again with Plutarch's account. Tiberius called a halt in the voting and again entreated Octavius, embracing him and kissing him in the sight of the people, and fervently begging him not to allow himself to be dishonored, and not to attach to a friend responsibility for a measure so grievous and severe. On hearing these entreaties, we are told, Octavius was not altogether untouched or unmoved. His eyes filled with tears, and he stood silent for a long time. But when he turned his gaze toward the men of wealth and substance who were standing in a body together, his awe of them as it would seem, and his fear of ill repute among them led him to take every risk with boldness and bid Tiberius do what he pleased. And so the law was passed, and Tiberius ordered one of his freedmen to drag Octavius from the rostra. So there we go. Tiberius had won. He had to banish a lifelong friend to do it, but he could now pass his reforms. The only problem was that he was only in office for a year, and you'd better believe the rich men he was trying to bankrupt were going to use every trick in the book to try to prosecute him once he left office. He started receiving death threats and took on bodyguards to protect himself. Implementing his law was difficult, and it became clear that he wasn't going to be able to complete his work in the small amount of time he was in office. Since he believed he was the only one strong enough to finish the work, he thought it would be prudent to ignore tradition and run for a second term. No acting tribune could be brought up on any charges, so it made sense to stay tribune as long as he could so that no one could stop him. This was not a good idea. The wealthy had been busy in Rome spreading rumors that Tiberius had a secret plan to become king. And there is nothing in ancient Republican Rome that is worse than being declared a monarchist. The very origin story behind Rome involves the brutal murder of kings and the establishment of the Republic. Impeaching Octavius had been a controversial had been controversial, but protests began in earnest once Tiberius said he was staying on as tribune. One more time, here's Plutarch, 
And uh, this quote is going to mention a few names that I haven't brought up yet. They're mostly senators and fierce opponents of Tiberius. We pick up the action in the midst of a riot. Whereupon Tiberius put his hand to his head, making this visible sign that his life was in danger, since the questioners could not hear his voice. But his opponents, unseeing this, ran to the Senate and told that body that Tiberius was asking for a crown, and that his putting his hand to his head was a sign of having that meaning. Thereupon Nasica sprang to his feet and covered his head with the, with the skirt of his toga and set out for the capital. All the senators who followed him wrapped their togas around their left arms and pushed aside those who stood in their path, no man opposing them in view of their dignity, but all taking to flight and trampling upon one another. Now the attendants of the senators carried clubs and staves they had brought from home, but the senators themselves seized fragments and legs of the benches that were shattered by the crowd in its flight and went up against Tiberius. At the, tame, at the same time smiting those who had, were drawn up to protect him. Of these there was a rout and a slaughter, and as Tiberius himself turned to fly, someone laid ho hold of his garment, so he let go of his toga and fled in his tunic. But he stumbled and fell to the ground among some bodies that lay in front of him. As he strove to rise to his feet, he received, received his first blow, as everyone admits from Publius Satirius, one of his colleagues, who smote him on the head with the leg of a bench. To the second blow, claim was made by Lucius Rufus, who plumed himself upon it as if some noble deed. And, so, and of the rest, more than three hundred were slain by blows from sticks and stones, but not one by the sword. So, yeah, Tiberius's reforms kind of ended after the entire Senate clubbed him to death. It was quite clear that Tiberius and the Senate were unable to work together. It's impossible to say if Tiberius's fate could have been avoided had Octavius and Tiberius found some sort of compromise while they were busy vetoing everything under the sun, but I think the larger message is that obstructionism can be a very dangerous weapon to wield and should be used sparingly. If you hold a vote, you, you might win or you might lose, and then you can move on. If you don't hold the vote, pressure just keeps building up until there's some sort of outburst. Consider the question of how and when to replace Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. Republicans are currently saying that because it's an election year, they want to wait until there's a new president to decide who the next judge justice will be. If I were a betting man, I'd say that they're going to get their wish. But what happens if the election, if the election elects a Republican president, and now it's the Democrats who want to be obstructionist? They might say, well, actually, we want to wait six years so that all the members of the Senate can get reelected. After all, the voters who elected the senators haven't had a shot to weigh in on who the Supreme Court nominee should be. But then let's go further. It's six years down the road, and all the senators have been reelected, and now there's a Democratic president. Maybe the Republicans say, hold on a minute, we can't nominate a replacement yet. We've cloned, we've cloned Scalia, and are waiting for his clone to mature and go through law school so that he can be appointed to replace himself. I realize that I've sort of had a nutty with this example, but it's, it's just meant to illustrate a point. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, if political leaders start using obstructionism as their preferred method, the entire system of government can grind to a halt. The story of Tiberius Gracchus takes place near the end of the Roman Republic. Within a generation of Gracchus's death, the corruption and gridlock of the system doesn't get any better, and a man named Julius Caesar rises to power on the promise that he would be a strong leader who wouldn't let the politicians get in the way of the glory of Rome. I guess what I'm saying is that we need more politicians, not less. Voters can be absolute in how they vote for representation, but their representatives need to be flexible to make sure the entire system doesn't break down around them. On that somber tone, I'll wrap things up. Thanks again to Molly Woon for her interview and to all of you listening. Please subscribe and leave a review on our iTunes page. That's the best way to let other people find out about the show. 
As always, you can check back on BallotBall.com for weekly stories and follow at Ballot underscore Ball for live tweets during the debates, where I call penalties in real time when the candidates don't answer the questions they're asked. Until next time, remember to register to vote, and I'll see you again next month. Thank you.